Would you please join me as we pray? Lord, we are asking that you might might sweep us up in the celebration of your love, the celebration of a relationship with you. You know how much we need that. Would you come to us now in Christ's name and for his sake and glory? Amen. Well, every generation has its wedding songs. You hear them as the bride goes down the aisle, as they process the first dance, the reception. Maybe it's All of Me by John Legend. Maybe it's Thinking About You, Ed Sheeran. Maybe it's Bruno Mars, Marry You. Some of these might ring a bell. Well, you may not know this, but our passage tonight is a wedding song. It's an ancient wedding song. It's a royal wedding song. And that got me curious about the playlist for the recent royal wedding in 2011. Now, that was the wedding, in case you don't remember, between William and Catherine Kate Middleton. I'm talking across the pond, okay? And at that wedding, there was no uh, shortage of musical resources, two choirs, Uh, You also had the the London Chamber Orchestra. You had the Naval Air Force Band playing as well. And this was some of the music. If you had watched the ceremony, they marched down the aisle to I Was Glad, which is Psalm 122. A few of the hymns they sang, Guide me, O thou great Redeemer, and love divine, all loves excelling, was another hymn. And then there was a specially commissioned song that was written from the text, This is the day which the Lord hath made. And as I read that list, it occurred to me there were actually two weddings being sung about. There was the wedding that was unfolding before people's eyes, but then there was the heavenly wedding being referred to in the music. The music between God or rather the wedding, marriage, between God and his people. And Psalm 45 basically gives us a picture of that very thing. It's a wedding song for a king and his bride, but it's so much more. Now, we know that it was a wedding song for one of the kings in the line of David. We don't know which one. But there's no way you can read the psalm without thinking, this has got to be about a greater king. For instance, in verse 6 and 7, it's said of the king, your throne, O God, is forever. Now the New Testament will pick up on that line in in the book of Hebrews, using it referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church. If you saw the reflection in your bulletin before the service on the first page, there's a book of Revelation reference. This theme of Jesus Christ as a bridegroom runs all the way through the New Testament. In fact, the book of Revelation, the story of God itself, climaxes with this image of the marriage supper of the Lamb. God the groom, His people the bride. The whole thing ends with a wedding feast. This is what the Christian faith teaches An Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, who's really brilliant on the Psalms and is now gone to be 
uh, in the Lord's company said, the psalmist pens royal compliments that blossom into divine honors. Which is to say, God inspires the psalmist to write a song for the wedding of the king of Israel, but he writes better than he knows. Because God moves his pen in such a way where he's writing about that heavenly wedding, that heavenly marriage that all believers in Jesus will participate in. And the marriage that not the best earthly marriage, no matter how good it is, can even come close to reflecting. Now this past month, you know, the social media has been a flutter with, I guess you could call it the scandal, with respect to Ashley Madison, if you're aware of that site, right? It's a site that is dedicated uh, for married people and committed people in relationships to be able to arrange affairs. And someone hacked into the site and began to leak information, making folks nervous. And there have been a lot of articles out there, some about privacy, some about the vulnerability of the Internet, some about how bad men are. Um, But you know something? There's a deeper thing that's going on, right? And it's the perpetual search for the ultimate lover and the foolishness of thinking that we can find it in a human being. Because we were made for a divine lover. We were made for a lover of our soul. And as we wrap up this short series on what we're calling Messianic Psalms, those are psalms that look ahead to the person of Jesus Christ, I'd like us to close it out by looking at Christ our lover. And we'll look at it three different ways, who he is, what he gives, and how we respond. Christ our lover. First of all, who is this heavenly lover? Now, if a friend of yours or a brother or sister calls you up and says, I've met the one, I've met the person, the next question is going to be, well, describe him or her. What are they like? And so the psalmist tells us about our groom, and he uses poetic language to describe him in just really lavish and beautiful ways. Praise to his appearance, the king's appearance. He's called handsome. And then even his festal robes are described in terms of smell, the fragrance of them. But the further you read into the psalm, the clearer it becomes the outward beauty is made bright and it's illuminated by an inward moral beauty. Character, essentially. The prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah that there would be no beauty or majesty that we, we would be attracted to him. That means he wouldn't appear on the cover of GQ. He wouldn't look like the Jesus that is the Jesus in the movies, right? Uh, but rather he'd be an average guy. The thing that would attract people to him would be his moral beauty. And that's exactly what you find in the life of Jesus Christ. And he goes down a list. First of all, he mentions his beautiful speech. I don't know if you've had that um, experience where you meet someone who you think is pretty attractive. Maybe they're a knockout. And then the longer you talk to them, the less attractive they become. You know, maybe it's their pride. Maybe it's they're vulgar. Maybe they're critical. But their beauty just begins to fade away. Well, that's because moral beauty really lights up outward beauty. 
And we're told this is an unusual quality to find in a leader. Although he's full of power and authority, he has gracious speech. Usually when folks have power and authority, they believe they're exempt from being nice in speech. And say whatever you want to whoever you want and get away with it. But he has gracious speech. The kind that would draw people to himself. John Calvin was commenting on this psalm, and he lived in the 1500s, and he couldn't help but reflect on the leaders of his day. And he said, kings are not only to rule by authority, but allure people to obedience. What an interesting word. The language of love to talk about obedience. A king is supposed to, a leader is supposed to cause people to be attracted to obey, to desire to obey. And this is what the God of the Bible does. You can go to the book of Hosea, and God says this of Israel, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And I'll tell you, those tender, gracious words, if you've heard them, are powerful words. I mean, we know that. They're very powerful words. You could take the conversion and life change of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, I mean, when God meets him on the road to Damascus, he could have said a lot of things to Saul. I mean, he could have laid him out with the things that he would want to say. Instead, what he says is this, Saul, Saul. He says his name twice. He implores. He pleads to him. And Saul's heart melts. God not only commands, he woos. Do you hear that language from God? Have you heard the God of heaven and earth wooing you and speaking that gracious language of love? The second thing is this king is known for his power and might. Verse 3, he's referred to as a mighty one whose sword is at his side. His arrows are unstoppable. This is a picture of a lover that knows how to defend his own. Now, we really don't get this. Think about how much you worry. Think about how much you deal with daily anxiety. Maybe it's about your money. Maybe it's about your health. Maybe it's about your kids. And you know what that tells me about myself and about you? We don't know who our lover is. Because perfect love casts out all fear. If we knew the divine lover, we would feel safer. We would feel more protected. Because he is one that knows how to protect his own. And this is what Jesus Christ does in his mission. He protects his people from false friends, people that would seek to be intimate with you, but really steer you off course and do you harm. He protects his people from false accusation, the accuser of the brethren, the evil one, who would just daily, as soon as you wake up, make you feel terrible about yourself. I don't know what that first voice you hear in the morning, but the one I often hear isn't one that typically lifts me up. Brings me down. He's the one as well that protects us not just from false guilt, but true guilt. The real guilt that we have from the way that we live on a daily basis. And most of all, he is the one that goes in and protects us from death itself, the greatest enemy. Where, O oh death, is thy sting? This is the powerful suitor in Jesus Christ. One of the clearest expressions of this mighty love we have comes in the book of Romans chapter 8. 
And I want you, some of you are very familiar with this passage, but I want you to listen closely this time to the the connection between the love and the dangers. The love and the protection from the dangers. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from danger, from the love of Christ. You become fearless when you know you have been loved that well. This is God, the lover. But lastly, he's also one that loves justice. There's this image of a king riding in a chariot. And on the side of it, you could find written these words, truth, meekness, and righteousness. Again, a very unusual combination. Why is it many times the people that are most fierce about truth and righteousness are often the meanest, the harshest? And many times they end up getting crushed under their own self-righteousness. But you have this combination in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, where he is full of truth. He is full of righteousness. He is bold. He will not flinch. And yet he is gentle and lowly. He is meek. And people are drawn to him, all sorts of people. One commentator said, even when he shall break his enemies with a rod of iron, he will do man, he will do no man wrong. His vengeance and his grace are both in conformity with justice. And the same is true of his bride. As we come to know him in that way, we will be a community that can stand for the truth in this city, that is bold with the truth and the righteousness of God. Yet people have the sense that we're humble, that we're lowly, because we've been saved by his grace. This is who he is, but what about what he gives? Let me give you three here. He gives glory, gladness, and generations. First of all, we all know a royal wedding is not a private matter. I mean, if William and Kate wanted to have a private wedding, there would have been a revolution in England, a rebellion, right? People were not going to stand for that. It was the same in Israel, Because the wedding of the king was this sign that God was going to fulfill his promises to his people. It was the hope of Israel and the hope of the nations of the world. This is what they saw in that. But what we're told that the bride receives gives us a glimpse into what he gives to his people through this marriage. First of all, The glory that's paid to the king is reflected in the bride. As you read this psalm, it's clear. It it, it almost moves seamlessly. One moment you're hearing about the king's glory, and the next minute you're reading about the bride's glory. It's that close. It's that close between Jesus Christ and his bride. What's his becomes yours. The glory is depicted in many different ways. The beautiful many-colored robe she wears that she stands at his right hand. The wealth that regions like Tyre and Ophir, which were regions of great wealth, will bring to her. 
All this will be given to her, but more so, all these things and more are given to the bride of Christ, believers. The book of Ephesians says this, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, being someone that lives in a home uh, with a couple daughters and, uh, and women that really have a high appreciation for beauty and aesthetics, we will occasionally watch, say yes, to the dress. And one of the things about that show, if you've ever seen it, is uh, the incredible attention that's given to this one article of clothes. I mean, the design of it, the detail of it, more so that it's the perfect dress for this bride, right? Custom-made. A lot of attention is given to that. For all that attention given, it pales into comparison to the attention of the dress that God robes his people with. The dress that Jesus Christ places upon his bride, the church. Splendor without spot or wrinkle. The book of Ephesians will say, holy and blameless. What we're talking about here is those that have faith in Christ are seen in complete and total glory in God's eyes. Man, we could spend a lifetime just trying to believe that. I see the mirror. I see an aging person with a fairly large forehead. That's me. You know, I see someone that could you know, do a better job, someone that could be this, someone that could be that. You, you probably see, I don't know what you see in your mirror. In the mirror of God's eyes, because of Jesus Christ, he sees brilliant, shining glory. Sometimes when you're watching saying yes to the dress, you'll find your jaw drop, right? Because of the cost of these things. It's amazing. But again, it pales in comparison to the cost that God laid out for his bride. It was the cost of his son's life. His son would shed blood and die so that we would be dressed in this righteousness. Now imagine for a second you're watching an episode of this show. And there's a little bit of a backstory. And you discover this isn't the first dress and this isn't the first wedding. Actually, this bride, uh, they're actually renewing their vows because this bride was married to this groom and yet she left him. She betrayed him. She went on to commit multiple affairs with multiple people. And yet this groom was determined, almost lost his life to win her back and woo her back. Now we're getting closer to the gospel story of what the Son of God does for you and I that are adulterers. Be careful about judging the list of Ashley Madison too harshly. God would say that every one of us are spiritual adulterers. We are unfaithful to Him on a daily basis. But he dies that he might dress us. And then what's reflected in this bride, I mean, the dress is nothing short of a new identity. The place at his side is basically a place of authority. Jesus will say in the book of Revelation, for those that overcome, you will sit on my throne. The riches are nothing short than the inheritance, all the spiritual blessings that God showers on his people that they enjoy now. The book of Ephesians says every spiritual blessing now is in possession of those that are in Christ 
that follow Christ. And yes, one day the meek will inherit the earth. The people of God will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. This is what he gives. But he also gives gladness. In verse 15, we're told that the bride is filled with joy and gladness as she's led into the presence of the king. How does the thought of spending time with God make you feel? Now, I can guess if you're not spending time with him, I know how it makes you feel. Do you feel sheepish? Do you feel hesitant? Do you feel like you never do it enough? What we find here is that when we know who our lover is, we have joy going into his presence. If you're not joyful going into the presence of this God, you don't know what kind of lover he is. He is an unconditional lover. He is without walls and ceilings and windows and floors lover. Wide, deep, long, high lover. He is a perpetual lover. He is a relentless lover. He is a passionate lover. We have joy going into his presence. Is this a God you hoped you could know one day? This is far from some force up in the heaven that you can kind of shrug your shoulders at and go, I mean, you know, some people sort of have religion. I, you know, some, be, some people don't. I agree with you. If that's what God is, I mean, it's really optional. But if you begin to know him like this as he is, it won't be optional. Only a fool would stay away. Only a fool wouldn't take love. He also gives generations. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. The New Testament says that God will bring many sons and daughters to glory. Many sons and daughters to glory. That means many people will come to know him. Many, many, many. And be part of his family. And do you know something? You and I... You and I are part of how they get into glory. All of you that are spiritual parents, you might be a biological parent, but that doesn't make you a spiritual parent. Maybe it's through teaching. Maybe it's through mentoring. Maybe it's through a niece or nephew. Maybe it's through a friend's child. I'll tell you, as someone with kids, the people that have loved my children, oh, my heart is heavy in love for them. These are the generations that God has promised. Can you imagine yourself in heaven surrounded by your family, your spiritual children, your descendants? These are the generations. So this is what he gives, but let's close with how we're to respond. And it's simply two words. Undivided heart. If we understand who this lover is, we'll respond with a growing, undivided heart. The psalmist says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord. Bow to him. Now, the psalmist isn't saying to the bride, you know, completely forget your family never existed. He's talking about priority and loyalty. Do you know who your first love is? Marriage is about parting and new beginnings. I mean, here the emphasis is on the bride. You can go to the, the Genesis, the first wedding, and the emphasis is on the man. And a man shall leave his father and mother. 
leave and cleave, and the two shall become one. This is the image that's being put before us. You know, I see in the back there Chuck and Debbie uh, Garriott. And um, I remember a couple years ago when they did a, a, a wedding um, seminar for us, a marriage seminar for us, rather. And I remember them leading off this seminar by saying something. It's always kept my attention. I think Chuck said it. Chuck said, you know, really, the difference between a marriage that really thrives and flourishes and one that doesn't comes down to how you leave and cleave. I just didn't expect that. It really comes down to how you leave and cleave. And reading this, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, how are you going to be first priority lover unless you're sort of holding on to all the other stuff? I will love you, but we have to vacation in this cabin every summer. You know, I will love you, but we have to do Thanksgiving like this. No, right? You leave and cleave. And that's what the bride is being called to do. But again, the true fulfillment is between all believers that are married to Jesus Christ. God calls you in this way. I want to say to you, maybe you're here and you're looking into the Christian faith. I'm so glad you're here because maybe God is beginning to woo you. But He wants all of you. He wants to bring you into relationship with Him. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he was urging the Corinthians who were mixed up in lots of different ways. If you're ever feeling like, like your church is just a mess, read the book of Corinthians. I promise you, you'll come away going, eh, maybe Grace Downtown isn't so bad. I mean, and I think I love that God put this church in the scripture because it shows us we can only exist by grace. It just shows us that he never Gives up on people. So the Apostle Paul is wrestling with them because they're into all sorts of crazy false teaching. But listen how he addressed it. It's so interesting the way he goes after it. He could say, you're wrong. You're stupid. I taught you this. That's not as hard. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you, I engaged you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent seed by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I mean, that's how he actually later in the book deals with the problem of sexual immorality. I mean, if you're someone here that struggles with some form of sexual addiction, some attempt, I mean, we're all sexually broken in this room, so it's not if you're someone here, we all are. But it's so interesting how he deals with it. He goes right for the heart and goes, have you forgotten your lover? Have you forgotten the one that you've been promised to? The Lord. Why can't you unite your body just wherever you want? Because your body's His. This is how the council goes. Jesus said a similar thing in the New Testament when He said, you know, where your treasure is, your heart is also God doesn't want a divided heart. He will take the whole heart. So it puts the question between, before you and I, you know, what false love do you need to leave tonight? What false love do you need to leave? Or when you came to know God, what false love did you never leave? You held on to it. And I imagine it could be many loves. It might be the love that I impress people with my personality. That's how I kind of got through. It could be the love of keeping my options open. I want to keep them open. It could be the love of control. 
It could be the love of career. It could be you're someone that is covenant in marriage, but the truth is every day you spend your eyes just considering other beauties, other charms. What is it that His love would cause you to leave behind? Because you know those other loves don't last. They don't quiet you. They don't make you feel like a whole person. They don't make you feel holy and blameless in its splendor before Him, do they? Only He can do that. I've tasted of it. I know many of you have tasted of it. But this love requires a response. I want you to notice the three words the bride is given. Hearken, consider, incline your ear. All those could be summed up to attention. Attention. You know, the reason people fall out of love isn't lack of affection. It's lack of attention. They stop being attentive to their object of love. And so the object which is truly beautiful because of distraction in a divided heart begins to lose its love and luster. And so the way that we recover that love, and the, the Proverbs will say this about married couples, they'll say, be captivated about your spouse. That means that you need to work at it every day. You need to give your attention to their beauties. I will tell newly married couples, you should probably say a couple times a day a few things that you're thankful for, for this person God has given you. But it doesn't stop there. Because guess what? Earthly marriage isn't this end goal. In the end, we will all be single, so to speak, in God's one family married to Him. And so you can say it about one another, church. It may be a best friend. It may be to the person sitting next to you. Are you turning over your mind? Their excellencies, the way they are, have blessed your life, the glory that God has given to them for your benefit. Married people don't, fall out, don't just fall out of love with one another. Churches can fall out of love with one another. Right? It could be, man, I've been here for so many years, I'm just tired of loving people. I love people that go away. I love people that go away. The only way that affection is going to be renewed is you know the God that loves you when you go away and come back again. This is what He does. And it's also the way that we spend time with God. You know, and I want to urge you to start small. When people start dating, they don't have like 10 dates the first 10 days. Maybe if like you really fell hard, okay? But usually, you know, if someone comes up to you and says, I'd like 10 dates, you'll be like, I can tell you what the answer is going to be about this relationship, right? No, 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 no. Can I keep going? All right, I'm going to give you 10 no's. Maybe you need to start again small with God. Maybe it's a few minutes tomorrow morning. It's a few minutes tonight. It's a few minutes while you're walking to the metro. It's a, two, a few minutes on the metro. But it's how you spend those few minutes because many times our times with God are basically, pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. We need to start giving more attention to Him. Because if we begin to meditate on who this psalmist has described, guess what? We'll start to feel really privileged. We'll be like, maybe we'll even blush. Get a little shy and go, you're paying attention to me? Like you've memorized my life? 
you know my days? You collect my tears in a bottle? I mean, sometimes God shows up. Isn't it true? It's, he, the big things are wonderful, but it's when he does these small things for you in your day, and you're like, this had to be you, and no one else had this. For me, it's usually a parking spot. You know? <laughs> But I'm pretty trivial when it comes to love. You know, for you, it's probably greater. But you know what I mean? It's that thing. And if you don't know what I mean, if you get into a relationship with God, you'll know what I mean. I know many of you do. So we respond with that undivided heart. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, some of us here, you know, we're married or we were married. We want to be married. It's like, no thanks, I don't want to be married. It's the same message to all Your groom is at the altar. Your groom is at the altar. The lover that you've longed for, you're not waiting for him. You're not waiting for him. This fatalistic thing of, you know, some people get it, some people... He is here. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the lover that you are. Thank you for the way that you have loved your bride. We have been faithless many times. We so long for that day, it will be a blink in an eye when we will see you. We will gaze upon our lover. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.